tell you. Okay, uh, today we're going to continue spiritual warfare, and that may be why Laura is in a battle. And, f- you know, when your child's in a battle, where are you? In the battle. <laughs> so, uh, not speaking a whole lot. But still, you're watching what is happening. So, we want to look at, today we're going to go to the spiritual warfare that happened in the church of Pergamos. And they are compromising, and they are married to the world. Boy, that sounds like it's pretty relevant in our society today. So we want to dig into this church. Today, as I told you in the email, today's only a background because we will never understand the letter that he wrote to Pergamos if we don't know their culture and what they were dealing with, what this church had to deal with in their city. We have looked at the apostolic church, which was the church from the time of the day of Pentecost, after Christ ascended and the church is starting. And this started in about 34 AD, and the apostolic church ended with the death of John, who was the last apostle. And then you and I have looked at the church at Smyrna, which started about 100 A.D. This was the persecuted church, and Satan came at them as a roaring lion. And you had this church that over 5 million people, Christians, shed their blood for their faith in Jesus Christ. And now we're going to move into the year 313 A.D., to about 590, so this would be a period of about 277 years, and now Satan said, I can't persecute the church anymore. I'm going to join the church, and he will do much more damage when he joins it as to when he persecuted the Christians. So today I want to do an introduction. This is an artist rendition of the Acropolis uh, in Pergamum, and It's up high, about a thousand feet above the town is the top of the mount, and this is where all the important buildings are, plus there were many temples to pagan gods and goddesses. We know this is a church that compromised, some uh, commentators call it the church that married the world, and another one is, help, I have no discernment, and so they're letting all this false teaching come into the church, and they're not doing anything about it. So this was the exalted church. Remember, these are the periods of history where this type of church was the supreme church during that time period. But even when you have the church at uh, Pergamos, you are still going to have maybe churches somewhere that are like Ephesus. You're still going to have churches that are like Smyrna, depending on where they are. But this becomes the premier church during this time period. It starts with Constantine the Great, who was called a Christian emperor. Notice by the end of the time period, who is in power? A pope. Gregory the Great. And so we're going to go from a like a civil emperor and by the end of this 277 years you're going to have a pope who really has more power than the emperor and you're going to go into the time of the rise of the catholic church which will take us to the church of thyatira 
and take us into the dark ages. So this is a church that marries the world. They're in the center of all kinds of heresy and apostasy, and it, Jesus is going to address that in his letter to them. Uh, a little bit of a geographical perspective on our map. You see the yellow arrow is where John is when he has the vision and Jesus is dictating the letter. Domitian, one of the uh, Roman emperors, exiled, exiled him over there. And then the green arrow is the church of Ephesus, and we've been there. And then you go north a little bit to Smyrna, the red arrow, and we're going a little bit further north today, about 48 more miles, and we're at the purple arrow, and we're now at uh, Pergamos. After we leave Pergamos in a few weeks, a few weeks, there's a lot of information on Pergamos, then we will start a southerly direction and head down towards Laodicea. So we're going to go to Revelation 2, and we're going to look at Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamos. You have been compromising. You have no discernment, and you're married to the world. And so we know that every time he starts a new letter, he tells John to write it to the angel, or we'll say like the leader of that church. And so in Pergamos, and he is going to introduce himself differently to every church depending on their situation. So this is one reason you and I need to do a lot of background to see why is he going to introduce himself as... He says, I am the one coming to you, and I have a sharp, two-edged sword. I think we better sit up and pay attention, because he's coming at us with that sharp, two-edged sword to the church of Pergamos. I want you to listen carefully to what he says to him. I know where you dwell. Now, the word dwell, it doesn't mean I'm here for a visit. I have set down roots. I am staying here. This is where I am going to live and dwell. And notice what he says. Pergamos is where Satan's throne is. I would have wanted to move. But there are, there's a church that has stayed there. You dwell there. This is where Satan's throne is. Now, in Smyrna last week, we saw they had a synagogue of Satan. But now, in Pergamos, Satan is actually dwelling there, and he goes on and says, this is Satan's throne. He is ruling from this town, and he dwells there. Yet, you're holding fast to my name, and you're not denying my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And he mentions it again. This is where Satan dwells. So let's just, you need to kind of, uh, in your mind, picture living in this town. Can you imagine what a wicked town it is? Satan's throne. Now, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You've got some people in your church that are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who goes and teaches King Balak, here's the key. You've got people that are adhering to this doctrine. Entice the Israelites to sin. Now, they had a specific thing they were doing. They were enticing them to eat food sacrificed to idol and committing sexual immorality. 
And we have people in the pulpit and in the churches today that are saying all kinds of things are okay. So this is the doctrine of Balaam, which we will look at next week. And he says also, you've got some people in your church that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and I hate it. We'll look at that next week with Balaam. Now, here's his advice. I want you to repent, or I'm going to come quickly, and I'm going to fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Now, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we have seen Satan usually has two means of attack. He will try that roaring lion with violence like he did in Smyrna. That didn't turn out too well. The church grew like crazy. They were meeting underground and in catacombs and so forth. And so now he's going to join the church. And remember, he can masquerade as an angel of light. Okay. And, but he can be deceiving. Is he the master deceiver? Yeah, he can tell lies and everything. And do people believe it? Yes. So that's what we're going to see in this church. Now, during Smyrna which we've just come from, they had 10 evil uh, Caesars, the emperors, 10 evil ones that hated the Christians. And so it seems Satan concluded, this wasn't very effective. I can't make those Christians knuckle under. So with hostility and persecution, so he's going to change his tactics, and all of these emperors have gone off the scene, and we have a new emperor coming on the scene. And Satan's really going to use him. Now, this false church was already developing during the days of the Apostle John, masquerading as God's true church. But it's just now coming to the forefront. And this will be one of the main church centers in the world at this time. Satan's going to join the church, and he's going to deceive it. Entice the people to sin. And he's going to bring in corrupt practices and false teachings within. But he masquerades as an angel of light. And part of their cry is, help, we have no discernment. You know, so if they don't have any discernment, they're not going to know that they've got false teaching going on. So Jude warns about this in his book, verse 4. Certain people have crept in. And they are unnoticed. They're unnoticed. We didn't notice them coming in. And look at who they are. They are ungodly people. What are they doing? Two things that you might want to star. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. What are they going to tell the people? It's the doctrine of Balaam. You've got a license to sin. You're a believer. You can do this. You can do that. Then just go ask for forgiveness. You're licensed to sin, and they will deny their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We're going to find both of those things in the church of Pergamos that Jude warned about. And that's next week's lesson. So, we're going to go into some history now. The original seat of Satan... And all this idolatry on the earth started where? In Babylon. We know that. And you know that also from the Bible. So that's where it's going to start. Babylon was the occultic and the mythological headquarters of Satan's idolatrous and demonic stronghold. 
That was the headquarters. Now, in the upper right corner, you're going to see kind of a little genealogy here. We start with Noah. Noah had a son named Ham. Ham was the one who, after the flood, saw his father's nakedness, and he went out and said, come on, boys, come look. But the other two didn't. So there is now a curse on the line of Ham, and he is going to have one of his sons, Cush, and the curse is on Cush, and Cush is going to have a son named Nimrod. Now we're in trouble, because Nimrod is described in the Bible, I think maybe Genesis chapter 11 might be. And so he is the great-grandson of Noah, and he's going to be the founder of this religion the Babylonian religion that's occultic, and he is really a type of a person that is influenced by Satan. And so he's got a curse on him, and then he has a son, and Nimrod is going to start this religion. He is also the leader of those who built the Tower of Babel, which led to his reputation. Nimrod is this king, and he's very rebellious against God. So there's where, we're, there's where all of this is going to start. Now, I know this is going to sound strange, but it's true. Ham had a son, Cush, who married a guy, a woman, sorry, named Semiramis. And then Cush and Semiramis had a son named Nimrod. Now, after the death of his father, Cush is going to die. Nimrod rises to become the powerful king there in Babylon. He marries his mother. And they have a son named Tammuz. And Tammuz is even in the Bible. We're going to go look. Now this develops into, as you get into the study of this, we have the worship of his widow, Semiramis, and the posthumous son, Tammuz. So we're going to have the worship of a mother and a child. This is starting right here. Now, if I go to Ezekiel 8.14, it says, do you remember uh, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is in Babylon. All right? And God lifts him in the spirit, and he lets them see what's going on over in Jerusalem. And so this is what he sees going on. Is the temple still standing? Yes. Now, he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of Jehovah, and there are some Israelite women. Some of the Israelite women are sitting out there at the temple, and they are weeping for Tammuz. That is a, cult, a Babylonian cultic god who they say is really baby Jesus. All right, and they're out weeping for him. Now, here is a graphic that really kind of helps to explain all this. On the left is Semiramis. She was the moon goddess of ancient Babylon. Now, did the occultic pagans worship the sun and the moon and the stars? Yes. And so she was the moon goddess, and she is the wife and the mother of Nimrod, which is strange. Now, on the right is Nimrod, and he is the sun god. Was the sun god the most important god for the pagans? 
Yes, he had different names depending on the culture where you were in the country. But we have Nimrod and Semiramis, the sun and the moon, God and goddess. They have a child and name him Tammuz, who is supposedly baby Jesus. Does Satan always have a counterfeit? Yes. Now, he was born, they say, on December 25th. How convenient. Now, the entire earth is lying in the power of ancient Babylon. Are we told the whole world lies in the power of Satan? Yes. And the spell cast by Nimrod and his mother. Now, this is a, a picture of what we call a ziggurat. And they, they are, they're found, uh, archaeologists have found them all over in this area. People worshipped the sun in Babylon, and they made these high towers called a ziggurat. And on top, if you can see on top, there's a little, looks like a little building, and there is a temple, and this was dedicated to the queen of heaven. Now, in the Bible also in Ezekiel, you're going to find the Israelites what were they doing? And they even got the children involved and the men and the women. They were making cakes to the queen of heaven. So they're weeping for Tammuz and making cakes to the queen of heaven. So were they influenced by this pagan religion? Yes. Now, so this is Semiramis and her name's going to change to Mary eventually down the road. Now, fast forward with me, and we are now in 539 B.C. Babylon is about to be defeated. And Babylon, remember, is the head of gold on the statue. But it's about to be defeated. They're in a grand hall that night, and they're having like a drunken feast orgy. They are even drinking out of the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar stole out of the temple of Jerusalem. You can imagine that handwriting on the wall that comes up. Yeah, you've been weighed in the balances and found uh, wanting. You're done tonight. And so who's outside ready to come in? Cyrus the Great, the Persians. And so we have him coming in, and the Babylonians are going out, and they are defeated. Now, now we have a new religion and new gods from Persia. What do you think is going to happen to all those Babylonian gods and their religion? They're not going to be popular with Persia now because they're done. And Persian is coming in. They have different gods. They have a different religion, even though it's all still pagan. So the pagan mystery cults that have been at Babylon, they're going to go to Pergamos. They're going to Pergamos after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Now, I want you to look at my map, and in the low right corner, you're going to see a red arrow come up. That's going to be Babylon. And I want to show you how far they're willing to go and move and set up new headquarters. So here's the red arrow, and look how far they're willing to travel and take their Babylonian cultic religion. So they can't do this anymore with Persia in power. They got to go find a new home, a new spot. And they chose Pergamos. This is where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Now, in 312 AD, we're just starting the church at Pergamos. 
And who's coming to power? Constantine, who was called a Christian emperor, which is really not correct. But anyway, he was called that, and he's called Constantine the Great. So he set out to defeat his rival for supreme power in the empire. And he said, you know, my dad prayed to the God of the Christians, and he prospered. I think I'll pray to that same God. And so it says, on the next day, he saw a shining cross in the sky with the inscription above it that said, in this sign, the sign of the cross, thou shalt conquer. And so he defeated his rival at the Milvan Bridge and immediately declared, I am a Christian. That's how he declared that. That was the background of that statement. Now, Eusebius Pamphilius, who was the bishop of Caesarea, wrote, He saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription conquered by this. And at this sight, he himself was struck with amazement and his whole army also. So that's talking about Constantine. So we're going to this church. Constantine has come in power. He declares he's a Christian. So we're going to have Constantine, but by the time we get to the end of this 277 years, we're going to have a pope in power. So when Constantine accepted Christianity, he turned his kingdom into, this is a Christian kingdom. Everything in here is going to be Christian. And I'm ending all persecution. That sounds great, doesn't it? Great. But remember, Pergamos is the throne of Satan, where Satan dwells. So he began functioning as a self-appointed uh, political leader of God's church. He ordered Romans, all the Romans, to recognize Christianity is now the national religion. We have a state religion. Doesn't that sound great? Oh, no. State religion is not good. Now, he frequently used the word Catholic to describe the church. The word Catholic really means universal. Now, he wanted all men everywhere to embrace the Christian faith and be united. Sounds good. And if I could just make everybody say they're a Christian, we can unite this empire, and it will be great. That's what he thought. So one year after he came into power in 313, we have the Edict of Milan. And Constantine gave Christians and other unspecified other people, you can worship any way you please. We're all just going to be under the umbrella of Christianity. What do you believe? Just bring it right on in. What do y'all believe? Bring it in. So he brought in everything, and boy, do we have a mix of beliefs when we're all under this umbrella, but we're all Christians. That's what he said. Now, what's the result of all of this? Christianity spread unmolested in the empire. Christianity was adopted by Rome as the official religion of the empire. The church was joined with the pagan world political system. He favored Christians. Boy, that's a change from Smyrna. But if everybody's a Christian... Okay, he favored Christians at court, and he said, all of you Christian ministers, you're exempted from taxes. Okay, he ex issued a general exhortation to all of his subjects. You are to become a Christian. I exhort you to do that. He abolished crucifixion as a means of execution. That was good. He reduced the killing of unwelcome children. That was good. He advanced Christians to high offices. He forbade work on Sunday. Good. 
He assumed the headship of the church. Not so good. Marriage was consummated between the world and the church. So that's what was happening under him. Christianity is now popular. Allowances are made for the pagans to become part of the church. And they, the church indulged in some pagan doctrines to make Christianity more attractive. Somebody out here might say, I don't want to be in your church because you don't believe this. Oh, well, we'll make it part of our, our beliefs here and you come right on in because everybody's going to be a Christian. Now, due to incentives, there's a great influx of people who profess Christianity just because they want to be in the empire. And with them, do y'all see my spiritual baggage? It's going to be awful when we unzip it and start letting all that stuff out. I think that's like Pandora's box, maybe. So we're going to, it's zipped right now, and we do not want to unzip it. But that's what Constantine and all these people were doing. Let's unzip the bag, and whatever it is can come out and be part of our empire. It's interesting that many of the Catholic Church practices, their customs and teachings, began about the time of Constantine. All the heathen customs and practices were creeping into the church. And I'm reminded of Jude. They creep into the church unnoticed. Now, the heathen priest became a Christian priest. The heathen temples, oh, it's now a Christian church. We went in and sprinkled some holy water on it, and now it's a Christian. Heathen days of feasting and drunkenness became Christian days like Christmas and other saint days. Who is Tammuz? Who is that? This is their baby Jesus. And the women were out weeping for him. These are the Israelite women in the Bible. Can you imagine? They're God's children. He has blessed them. They're at the temple that they built to him, and they're out weeping for Tammuz, who is a pagan little god. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the legend from Babylon. Because we opened that bag and we've allowed all this to come out. Tammuz was associated with a sun god. That was his dad. And he was born to Nimrod, the sun god, and Semiramis, the moon god, goddess. He dies every winter at the winter solstice. But he gets resurrected as the days get longer and so they're out weeping for him because right now they're waiting for him to be resurrected in the spring every year. This is celebrated by burning a Yule log at night. And it's replaced by a trimmed tree the next morning. So there are pagan symbols associated with how we even celebrate Christmas. So... I'm just, I'm not downing all those, I'm not putting down all those things. I'm just telling you, they do have pagan roots. Now, before I knew all this, I didn't know any of that. And so, I mean, to have a tree in the house and everything, that I, we were just doing it, I, I'm going to say in ignorance maybe. But we don't think of that when we have all those things. I'm just telling you, they have pagan roots. Now, pagan images and statues were still honored, but what did they start doing with them? Because they had so many, they're going to give them a Christian name. And now, instead of all those pagan names, they're going to give them names like Peter, the first guy in the church, the first pope, or Mary, 
And then Artemis and Diana, remember when they're screaming out there in Ephesus for two hours, worshiping Diana? Oh, she's going to get changed to Mary. Her name's going to be changed to Mary. So they still called her the great virgin and the mother of the God. And Artemis, Diana worship was changed to Mary worship. Now, if you look at this picture, this was introduced during this time in the church of Pergamos. And you have Semiramis, who was called the queen of heaven, who's going to become Mary. And you have Semiramis, the mother of God, which is Tammuz. Now, prayer started becoming directed to pray to Mary now and worship Mary with this child. And it's interesting that missionaries, wherever they went into jungles, they always had a mother and child to worship. Always. Because remember when that spread out, when God disrupted the Tower of Babel and they went out and you've got the 70 nations, they took all that with them. So even in the jungles, they say the deep jungles, they go in there and they'll find a mother-child worship of the people. So we've got prayers for the dead coming up. We've got the doctrine of purgatory. We have the adoration of saints and angels. The clothing of the priest. Now I really went into a lot of detail when I did this about eight years ago. The little fish hat, okay, like the Catholic priest wear, that came out of this. The clothing. This is where the celibacy of the clergy started. Will this cause a lot of problems when you tell all these men they have to remain single? It's caused a lot of problems when you tell these men they have to remain single. Now, the rosary started during this time. It came into the church of Pergamos. The mass, the worship in Latin. Why are you putting it in Latin? So the people can't understand it. Now, the children were required to be Christians. So that you put a little water on their head. I think it's called christening. And they are a Christian. And so this also started during the church of Pergamos. Thousands of unsaved pagans became baptized and started calling themselves a Christian. In the year 324 alone, 12,000 men with women and children in proportion were baptized in Rome. It became very easy, and it was to your advantage to be called a Christian. Now, the emperor promised, this is interesting, he promised, if you become a Christian, I will give you a white garment. (laughs) I'm promised a garment of the robe of righteousness washes me white as snow. Okay, and he gave him 20 pieces of gold to become a Christian. It didn't cost anything to be a Christian, nothing. And it was to your advantage to be one. You would be more favored, but these were a lot of false Christians, as you can see. So this is going to cause a terrible spiritual adultery in God's church as the clerics of Roman Christianity substituted pagan fertility festivals for God's covenant rehearsals, his feast, his feast that he ordained as the proper ways that we would celebrate the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the pagans have all kinds of horrific fertility festivals that they use.
So this is just the same old paganism of heathenism. It's just got a new name. And that's what they do all the time. Just like they've got something, I think, called New Age. It's not new. It, it's just a new name for it. So the church had not conquered the world. The world conquered the church. And paganism had put on new clothes. But it's the same old paganism. Same thing. So it's a period of deteriorating moral standards and doctrinal corruption. Satan failed to destroy the church through persecution, but he's going to destroy her through compromise. That's how she'll become destroyed. The Christian standards became lowered, and now we have a marriage, a union between Christianity and paganism that will be to the detriment of the church. We had forced conversions. You get a white garment and 20 pieces of gold. Filled the church with unregenerates who were never Christian in any sense of the word. The ambition to rule, heathenism and pomp emerged in the world. Now, in exchange for religious tolerance, we hear a lot about tolerance, don't we? A lot. In exchange for this tolerance and acceptance, true principles of Christianity, they're going to be sacrificed over there. Why? Because we've unlocked, unzipped that bag, and we've got all these pagan beliefs. And we've got to let them come in, so we have to be tolerant. And Christian, uh, Christianity got lost in all of that. Because now it is a mass state religion. This is where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan dwells. Now, the church began drifting from its foundational truths. Don't you know the church was strong in Smyrna? Very strong. But now we're going to drift from all those foundational truths, all the doctrines, and we're going to begin compromising everything. You see him shaking hands across the aisle. This is what's going to happen. Compromise. Someone has well said, the further the society will drift from the truth, the more society is going to hate those that speak truth. And boy, are we finding that out. Now, this is a time when this belief came into uh, the forefront, and it's still a problem in the church. During the church of Pergamos, the premillennial belief, of which I am one, the thousand-year reign that Jesus Christ was going to have a thousand-year reign on this earth, that he would rule and reign in peace and righteousness for a thousand years. Literally, they threw it out of the church. Amillennialism. Augustine beliefs. Augustine had some great things, but also this is when the belief about his kingdom was thrown out. And there are many denominations today that still do not believe in a literal 1,000-year kingdom. So this dominated the church, and they began teaching, there's never going to be this future literal reign of Jesus Christ. Never. I go to Hebrews 1. Verses 5 to 14. 
there are seven quotations in Hebrews from the Old Testament. And what is it going to talk about? Jesus Christ, his coming glory in his millennial kingdom that the Father promised him in Psalm 2. And what does the prophets tell us? There is a kingdom coming. It is all over the Old Testament especially. Now, it tells us in Hebrews 1, Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies. Does he have a kingdom coming? Absolutely, for certain, you can bank on it. Jesus Christ, is he the Messiah? Is he the future king? Yes, we believe that. The important scripture puts on this, he's coming. He's going to set up a kingdom. We have a chance to rule and reign with him. He's already told the disciples and the apostles their place in it. How often does the Bible talk about it? There's over 1,856 verses in the Old Testament alone that talk about this future kingdom. Yet the church at Pergamos and even some of the people who had some of their theology correct, they threw it away and said amillennialism is the new belief and you put the word A in front of millennial and it means without. The word A means without. So there is no millennium. I go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see what Paul has to say. Paul says he must reign for how long? How long is he going to reign? To defeat all enemies, till all enemies are under his footstool, and death is the final one that he will have victory over. So this is the final part of Christ's redemptive work. It's going to occur during that millennial kingdom. He has to reign till all of the enemies are done. And the last one will be death at the end of the thousand-year reign before we go into eternity. All of prophecy points to the coming kingdom. It's coming. Now, if I didn't believe that, there would be, I would have not a whole lot of hope. I, but my hope, everything he's promised in the rewards, how he wants us to rule and reign with him, that's what I have to keep focused on. You, that's your hope. You've got to stay focused on it. It's paramount in Scripture. This kingdom that's coming, this whole Bible is all about the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ that God promised him. And this is his purpose. In his incarnate son, it will be certainly and completely filled in that kingdom. Don't take the kingdom away. Don't. It is, it is not biblical. Hebrews has five warnings for us. We're only going to look at warning number one. The danger of drifting. Because we had had the church in Smyr uh, Smyrna. Now Pergamus is going to do what? Drift from all those foundational truths. Hebrews says there's a danger in drifting, and it's Hebrews 2, 1 to 3. He says, therefore, because of these things... Now, that's how it starts. When I see the word therefore, because of these things, what should I do? Look back at chapter 1 and see what he's talking about. He said, you've got to pay more attention to what you just read in chapter 1 because these words came from Jesus Christ himself in chapter 1. Is he the final say? 
It said, God said my, the final words are in Jesus Christ, his son. So, lest we drift away and let them slip. So, if we look at the word drift, this is Strong's word, and it's the only time it's used in the Bible. Drift away from, and it means you're going spiritually adrift. You, you were here. But if you start drifting from what you know to be true, it is going to wreck you spiritually. And you will be sinning by slipping away from God's anchor. Who is the anchor? Who is truth? Jesus Christ. He's your anchor and he is truth. And you better not be slipping away from that and drifting away from what he says. Gradually drifting away means to lapse into spiritual defeat. Does somebody all of a sudden they're in spiritual defeat? No, it's usually, it starts gradually and people may not even know it's happening to them. That's how we slowly move away. Here is my mooring, here is my anchor. And things can happen in my life, I'm not in the word like I need to be and all of a sudden I've drifted out here. What's happened to my hope? It's gone. It's gone. And I've got to retain my hope in all the promises that Jesus Christ promised. Now, in Hebrews 6.19, he says, Every one of us have an anchor. And it says, it is for my what? My soul. That's my mind, will, and emotions. That anchor that I have in him, it's firm and secure. And I can be confident in everything this book tells me. I can be confident in all the promises. True? True? Yes. Okay. Now, Wiersbe says more spiritual problems are caused by neglect. Have you seen the picture of a Bible sitting over here and in dust they wrote, read me? Neglect. Then perhaps by any other failure on my part. We neglect God's word because we, our prayer life suffers. We won't worship with God's people. Are we commanded to come and gather together? Yes. Other opportunities for spiritual growth. We quit all that and all of a sudden I'm drifting. All of a sudden I'm drifting. The anchor never moved. I'm the one that moved. It is easy to drift. Very easy, but it's difficult for me to drift. And then when I try to get back to the anchor, I'm kind of going upstream because I've got all of this junk now that needs to be confessed. And so it's hard to get back once I have drifted. It says in Hebrews 2 2, he says, You got to listen to what you heard in chapter 1 the things Jesus spoke, he said the word spoken through angels, the angels talked a lot, didn't they? Especially in the Old Testament and told different people things. What they said proved unalterable. So what the angels said, was it always true? They could count on it. Yes. And every transgression and disobedience to what the angels said received a just penalty. So it the angel's word even proved steadfast, and there was a just recompense of reward. He says, he goes on, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
it first began to be spoken by whom? The Lord. And it was confirmed to us by people that heard him. And if we neglect what he said, we're going to be in great trouble. The cost of neglect is amaleo in Greek, and it means you will become apathetic. You have an attitude of indifference, and you have no care or concern for what God has to say. Now, then he says, therefore, he's pointing us back to chapter 1, where it's been describing for us the coming millennial glory of Jesus Christ and the believer's impending inheritance. Don't forget your inheritance and the glory that's coming for you in his millennial kingdom. Keep focused on it. Don't drift away from that because Jesus is the one that told us about it. Don't let the truths of chapter 1 fade away from your mind. He said revelation that came through the Son in chapter 1 carries far more solemn obligation for you and me than a revelation that was mediated through an angel or a man. I better pay close attention when it's Jesus talking, telling about his glory, his words, my inheritance. He powerfully exhorts them to reevaluate the worth of what you have. Realize what you have in Christ, and it will, you will not want to drift. It will focus you. You want that more than anything. He's bought it. He's paid for it. It's yours. Don't drift and don't lose it. Keep your focus. Now, we're going to Pergamos, finally. It is called the City of the Serpent. We're not surprised. So we're going to the City of the Serpent and look at a few things in the city and what Pergamos was known for. It was renowned to be a political power. It was little more than a castle on top of a hill before Alexander the Great came along and one of his generals seized Pergamos for Alexander the Great's kingdom. But then around 1200 BC, it's passed to Lysicomus. Now, do you remember, we had a picture a few weeks ago, Alexander was the goat that had the one horn. And boy, he went like crazy. And he had a huge empire. But then his horn was broken off. He died young. And how many horns came up out of him? Four. Lysicomus is one of them. So, now this Pergamus is going to be given under the rule of Lysicomus during the times after Alexander the Great. So Pergamus was the Roman capital of all of Asia Minor. This is also called Antolia. For 250 years, who's my capital? Pergamus, the seat of Satan, where he dwells. After its last king, Attalus III, he bequeathed Pergamus, and I'm going to give it to Rome. So he gave it to Rome 133 years before Christ was born. Pergamus is also renowned for intellectual achievement. They were the chief center of cultural and intellectual life of the Hellenistic. What's Hellenistic? Greek. Greek influence and all of that. 
It also had a library that rivaled the famed library of Alexandria in Egypt. Pergamos had a library with 200,000 volumes. And every page of every book was written on papyrus and parchment. Parchment was a type of material that was developed from animal skins and a lot stronger than papyrus, which was made from reeds. And so it was invented in Pergamos. So they were renowned also for that. They were renowned for their wealth and luxury. Their monuments and all their buildings had this beautiful high-quality white marble that we've seen uh, in some other pictures, and it very Greek-style, Hellenistic. Now, they have an Acropolis, which was uh, a common thing uh, in, those, in those countries back in this time. It rises triumphantly over all the ruins now. So here's an artist rendition of the Acropolis, and you can see it's going to have many things on top of it, uh, and we will look at a couple of these things. Now, here are some of the actual ruins uh, that we have pictures of, but it's the same thing up high on a hill. We're about 1,000 feet above the town, all right? Now, here's, I've just got several pictures showing you some of the ruins. Now, this is looking, we're down and we're looking up, and you can see the ruins up there on top of the hill. Now, every ancient Greek city worth its name had a theater. And this is where the people came, you know, for their plays and concerts, all that kind of stuff, civic gatherings. The architecture of the nearly intact, this is when they've uh, done archaeological digs, and it's almost intact, provides what is surely one of the most spectacular and dizzying settings of the ancient world. Now, you can look at it. I don't think I would even want to go up the stairs. Uh, cascade, I don't like height at all. Cascading sharply down this precipitous slope is the, uh, of the Acropolis toward the sea. This theater is one of the steepest of its kind. I don't know who designed it. Now, I'm showing you the red arrow from top to bottom. It's 120 feet, which is maybe what? Uh, there's three yards in a, three feet in a yard. I don't know. Anyway, math was not my thing. 120 feet, and there's 80 rows, and it would seat about 10,000 people. Now, it also was an acoustic marvel because this is taken from up towards the top, and they said somebody down below... Uh, talking, you could hear them on the top. Just an acoustic marvel. So it was quite a thing, and they were known for it. They're also known to be a center of religion. This is where some of the emperor worship started and the imperial cult of evil. They distinguished themselves. They became the site of the first cult worshiping a living Roman emperor. Now, they're the first city in ancient Roman Empire to build a temple to Caesar 27 years before Jesus was born. They also had three temples devoted to worship because the emperor was viewed as a god. Now, a temple was also dedicated, uh, built and dedicated to the joint worship of the goddess Roma and the emperor Augustus. Uh, Satan orchestrated the worship of Caesar from Pergamus, and it's going to go all over the Roman world. 
and it, but it comes from here. Now, the best preserved ancient sacred structure on their Acropolis is the Temple of Trajan. He was the emperor who released John. It was built during the reign of Emperor Hadrian, and Hadrian dedicated it to uh, Trajan. Now, here is a picture, an aerial view of the Acropolis. In the upper left corner is the Temple of Trajan. And it was one of the most well-preserved artifacts or buildings uh, as they began to uh, look at the ruins here. Here is an aerial view looking down on the ruins, and you can see it was quite large. This becomes all of the policies for government. This is going to be more like a governmental building because it was dedicated to one of the emperors. And here is another picture of it, some of the ruins. Now, it towering imposingly over the surrounding structures and ruins, its commanding presence is a testament to the strength of the imperial cult, worshiping the emperors, worshiping Caesar. Now, all the satanic policies emanated from here to all the churches in Asia Minor. One of the most dramatic structures of the Acropolis was what scholars believe is the temple of Zeus. Who's Zeus? He is the head god. Be called Jupiter in another language, different names depending Ra in uh, Egyptian. He was the supreme ruler of the gods, and this here in Pergamos was one of the most significant places of worship in all of Anatolia, which is now modern-day Turkey. This is an artist rendition of what that temple may have looked like. I'm going to show you all that's left that they have is the altar. But that's according, this is what they think it might have looked like. Now, Jupiter or Zeus, he is the supreme ruler of the gods, and everybody worshipped him. He was the chief. Now, Zeus was said to have been born in Pergamos. This represents the strongest and most powerful of deities. This was a god that you better fear. He's the chief. And he could control and manipulate all other gods, was their belief. Now, the emperors and all the deities were subject to his power. So Zeus has always been a significant deity. The political leaders worshipped him. And if I want power and control, I want to keep my position, I better worship him. Only the massive foundations remain on the southern slope of the site. So I've got a picture here. And where my rectangular red box is, that is... And they have it fenced. They have it fenced out there. But this is the altar. That's all they have left. And it's 125 feet by 115 feet, 50 feet high. So this is all that's left of that temple. Now, can you see the town below? Okay. And this is up high. We're 1,000 feet up. But there's a place for this particular temple was you know how when you're up high on a mount but part of it may jut out further than the other that's where this was it's on a piece that juts out and it hangs over the city that will be important here in just a minute the altar is on a hill a thousand feet high it rises behind the town it's 800 feet up and it's on a ledge 
out from the mountain and on it stood this altar to Zeus. And so you can see it here a little bit better. You see it's on a piece, the red box, and we've jutted out here and we're hanging over the town. Smoke billowed sacrifices Smoke billowing sacrifices offered 24 hours a day. Now, they were serious about worshiping their God. Sacrifice animals, incense, all that, 24 hours a day. But this temple of Zeus is really offerings to Satan. That's who they're really worshiping. Now, it dominated the city. This is what a uh, commentator said, like a pillar of uh, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You're always going to see Satan using stuff, you know, because what? He's an angel of light, and it's hard to discern sometimes. Now, here's just another picture of the Acropolis ruins. Do you notice the heavy fog on the city? All that smoke. All the smoke. Pergamus was Satan's throne. It was also a center of ancient sun worship that they got from Babylon. They also worshipped the gods Apollo, Athena, Aphrodite, Bacchus, the god of wine, Dionysus, whose worship involved obscenities impossible to describe. And the ruins of Dionysus' temple is in the upper right corner. Now, this is one of the most fascinating things. I hope y'all are finding this interesting. Okay, good. They were renowned for a center of medicine, and they had one of the first medical schools in the world. Pergamus, the city emblem, was that caduceus, the winged snake. Just the same thing as the medical, right? This was also theirs. This is also there, the city of the serpent. So all this is coming together. Now, the caduceus, that ancient astrological symbol, was also of commerce. And so all of this, do you see the picture of the god Hermes? And you see the caduceus in his hand. He's the messenger for the gods. He's also the conductor of the dead and protects merchants. So, they were known for this center of medicine and a medical school. Galen was known, this man Galen was known as the second greatest medical mind in the known world. He was called the prince of medicine. And he was very good in medicine, but we have a problem. Because mingled into the true medicine, they're going to have a lot of superstition come in. And we're going to find this bizarre and strange worship of Asclepius, who they said was their god of healing. And it's associated with Pergamus, who was called the serpent god. So let's see what all they were involved in. This is a temple. This is Asclepius. Do you see the, the caduceus in his hand? He claimed he had the power to avert death. He's a god of medicine and healing. Now, Asclepius, the temple they have and he can avert death, it was said he was born as a result of Apollo, who is a, one of their gods, having sex with a human woman. And then he was raised by a centaur, who's half horse, half person, 
who taught him the art of supernatural healing. And in my mind, immediately, I thought of the Nephilim. You know, and those angels who had uh, sex with the, the women, and they had these offspring that were not fully human and did wickedness and all kinds of evil in the world. Now, so here's his emblem. He's the god of healing and medicine. Now, they had a temple called the Asclepion. These were healing temples located in ancient Greece and in the Roman world, and they were dedicated to Asclepius. He was the first doctor demagogue in Greek mythology. The one located in Pergamos was the second largest medical center in the known world. So it's very popular. Asculapaeus was said to have been such a skilled doctor, this guy can raise people from the dead. Do you see how Satan just weaves all of this into their beliefs? Now, stemming from the myth of his great healing powers, pilgrims naturally, they're going to flock to these temples in order uh, that were built in his honor because they want spiritual and physical healing. The emperors from Rome even came to this one to be treated here. What did they use? Methods of treatment included suggestion, dreams, praying, sun and water baths, exercises, honey cures, walking barefooted, listening to music, drug therapy, giving blood. The Asclepion was surrounded by woods and sheltered by mountains. It sounds like a place where it is that I wouldn't mind being. Now, not all that other stuff, but woods in the mountains and the babbling brook, you know, I could, I could do that. Now... To get there, this is a path they called the sacred way. You want to get healed and all, you walk this sacred way. So there's a ruins of it. Now, if you keep looking at the pictures, this is the entrance leading to the healing center, to the Asclepion. Now, if you were a terminal patient, you were not allowed to go there. Because the priest didn't want anyone hearing, oh, somebody died here. You're coming here to be healed. You know, but if you were terminal, you weren't allowed to go in there because they can't have anybody die. Now, so there's a huge sign above the entrance that says, death is not permitted here. <laughs> and the only way you can gain entrance if you know you're going to live. Okay. Now, this is a picture of the, the way to get there. And they have running water. Oh, it's so soothing. You know, and what do they have? They have priests behind the little niches in the wall with subliminal messages as you're walking. You are healed. You are getting better. So this is the running water, all of that. Now, here's the cool part. Then when you got in there, you drank a sedative and spent the night in the dormitory. Non-poisonous snakes would crawl around you all night. Come on, they're not poisonous. <laughs> the serpent god, Asculapaeus, would speak to them in their dreams and give them a diagnosis. Now, y'all think I might be making this up, but I got this out of their history. Now, as snakes, are snakes uh, affiliated with them? Yes. 
as just like a snake sheds its skin and they're reborn, the patients here were to shed your illness and regain your health, but only if you knew you weren't going to die. <laughs> so while you sleep, the diffused multiplicity of the deity of Asclepius, who is the snake, crawls over your body and he will infuse you with his healing power. Yes, I don't know why people want to believe this stuff. Its touch was regarded as the touch of the God himself. Now, but to a Christian, a God whose incarnation is in the form of a snake, we only think of the serpent, the devil. We know that's of him. So here the highest capacity in mankind, the capacity to worship, is degraded into corruption. Jesus is going to come to this church with a double-edged sword. Yes, and this, it says, the city reeked with the stench of heathenism and paganism. The evil hung in the streets like a clammy fog. This is how they lived. Now, Jesus says, you tell that church, I'm coming to them with this sharp two-edged sword. This is very, it, there's always a reason for why he says how he comes to them. Pergamum was a city that three times named the, they were named the temple warder of the imperial cult. What does that mean? In Pergamus, their council was given the right of the sword, and they could sentence people to death. Are you understanding more why Jesus is coming to them as the sword in his mouth? In Revelation 1, he says in verse 16, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That's the word of God speaking. In Revelation 19:15, it says out of his mouth, when he comes back again, is a sharp sword. He's going to smite nations, rule them with a rod of iron, tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And on his clothing and is on his thigh, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes. So this church has been doctrinally pure. But they have drifted into compromise. He said, even though you're holding fast my name and you've not denied my faith, this church, they have, you have those there, you're letting, you're allowing the doctrine of ba uh, Balaam. You're allowing the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and I hate it. You're doing some good, but you're letting this come in, and I hate it. So Jesus calls them, you get back to the right path because he is ready for judgment on the people. This would have great meaning to these church members because they lived in a city that was filled with the splendor and power of false religion. You are going down a wrong path. You need to get back on the right path. Pergamos obviously was a church made up of Gentiles primarily. They had been converted out of paganism. They had no doubt been converted to Christ, but due to the changing times, they have picked up some of their former pagan habits and allowed it to be in the church. Disaster is looming on the horizon because when God comes with you with the, at you with that double-edged sword, guess what's coming? Judgment. Now, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's got a negative threatening introduction 
in serious danger from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming in judgment, and this sort of judgment will be used to cut down anyone who disobeys him, and they're deserving of judgment. The word of God is a double-edged sword. It speaks, he judges fast, and he moves fast, side to side, wreaking havoc as he uses that sword. Many denominations today have sold out to Satan. You can be anything you want and be in that church. They have wed the world, and they've long since been judged by Christ, and the church has been stripped of its power, stripped of its influence. Many Christians have been stripped of God's power in their life because of all the compromises. Pergamos was the official office of the proconsul of Rome. It was powerful in all of Asia Minor. The proconsul made laws and decrees for everybody. He had a sword. And as long as he held that sword upright, everything was fine. But what if he lowered it? Off with your head. See, they thought they had the power of the sword. Jesus said, it may look as though the proconsul of Rome's calling the shots around here, but Jesus is the one who rules in the affairs of men and in governments. And he said, your life is in my hands. No matter the threats of the sword of Rome, and you and I could put the threats of what's going on in our culture, the threats that may come up, come up against us as Christians, Jesus Christ said, your life is in my hands. And I'm the one that's ultimately going to judge everything by my word. And ladies, I want us to end on this note. His sword is the penetrating power of the word of God. Precisely, it's the discerning aspect of the word that judges the thoughts and attitudes of my heart and yours. We need him to judge our heart now so that we can stand blameless later. He says, there's no, none of us, no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him. And every one of us are going to give an account to him. I pray that he would use the sword on me now, judging my heart now, so I can stand clean before him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for, uh, 